This is The Back Pass, a podcast for sports nerds by sports nerds. Today on The Back Pass, we take a look back at the Australian Open, the thrills, the spills, and the drama of which there was plenty. We discuss the international break and extend support to club fans suffering withdrawal symptoms. All that and more coming right up. Hello and welcome to The Back Pass. I'm your host, Pavesh Malani, and with me today, I have Mr. Cricket himself, Sid Bella. Hey guys. Last week, we said he could explain quantum physics to a five-year-old. This week, we're hoping he can explain Nick Kyrgios. It's Shivang Dubey. Hello, everyone. I think I'll have more luck more luck explaining quantum entanglement to a five-year-old than I'll ever have of explaining Nick Kyrgios to anyone. If you get the reference, please let me know. Well, and you know what? Given that he's actually won the doubles, I think quantum entanglement is a good way to describe it. <laughs> And last, but most definitely not least, is someone who believes the best relationship a fan can have with their team is a long-distance one. It's the Auckland-based Crusaders fan, Gupreet Rana. Hey, everyone. Five in a row for the Saders this year. Sorry, who are the defending champions? Uh, it's the Crusaders, Kavish. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gents, let's start with the Australian Open. It was an eventful tournament even before it started, but my goodness, we've seen some cracking tennis over the past two weeks. A great night for Australian tennis last night, with Ash Barty winning the women's singles. She's the first female homegrown winner at the Aussie Open in 44 years. And of course, a special case, Mr. Quantum Entanglement, Nick Kyrgios, and uh, Mr. Kokonakis taking out the men's doubles final. Now, the men's final between Rafa Nadal and Daniel Medvedev is about to get underway as we record the show. So, gents, who's the favorite tonight? I'm always back the tried and tested one. Always will. So in this case, has to be the man who I think most of the people are backing Nadal. As for me. Yeah, my votes with El Toro as well. I think this is Nadal's for the taking. Go read any thoughts on that? Uh, Rafa, Rafa's got this. Uh, just the mental toughness, I think. Yeah. It's all Team Rafa. It's unbelievable. So, um, what are your thoughts on the tournament so far? Um, I'm actually disappointed in this tournament, and I have my reasons for it. Someone who's actually seen Beyond Bog growing up watching tennis, I think the crowd behavior, the player behavior, and a lot of other things have really disappointed me. Um, and I can, I can give you a few examples. Uh, the man you just mentioned, Nick, he throws the ball, hits a child, and that's unacceptable in the first place. And then he goes and gives them a racket. Now, he's been made out to be a hero because he gave him a racket. It should not have been that situation in the first place. Then he mocks his opposition player, Michael Dennis, right? Not acceptable. The worst thing is crowd is actually cheering him up for all that. So again, as I said, someone who's actually seen Beyond Bog growing up and watching tennis, I think for me this was not a very good tournament. Something would happen at Wimbledon or French Open or even the US Open. Um, then the whole Novak thing before the tournament started, I think for me it's been an absolute shambles. Look, the quality of uh, some of the tennis has been excellent from some of the players. But overall, if I have to give this a score out of 10, I won't give it more than 6 or 7. Um, I think... They wanted to keep the uh, the tournament, uh, you know, relevant. And one thing which they allowed was unlimited booze drinking at the uh, Australian Open. That's unacceptable. Um, so for on a lot of accounts, I think I'm very disappointed in this tournament. 
but again, I'm still backing Nadal to win this. Uh, so that'll be good for me if he does win. So I'll give one extra point for that. So you'd say it's excellent tennis on field, but the off-field issues have actually just diminished this tournament for you. Uh, absolutely have. Absolutely have. So how how much do you think this could be attributed to what Melbourne's been through over the past one and a half to two years? Melbourne suffered a lot from constant lockdowns in Victoria. How much of this is a bit of just a collective blowing off of steam in the way only the Aussies know how? Yeah, I think... You're right. Um, and I think that was one of the points which I mentioned they, they allowed, you know, crowd to have unlimited booze was just to actually attract people back to the, uh, you know, the, the tennis center. But was it the right thing? I think there was so much, you know, uh, pent up demand for this, you know, people just wanting to let out their frustration. And I think this was frustration coming out, whatever the case may be. Uh, but, you know, when you talk about a tennis tournament, uh, there is some level of dignity which has to be maintained. Um, because it has always been a gentleman's game. I mean, you won't expect something like this at Wimbledon, because let's say UK has been through a lot as well as far as lockdowns are concerned. But would you expect something like this at Wimbledon? Definitely not. So I think in that regard, I think um, Australians have not um, sort of lived up to the reputation of the event. Uh, They could have done a lot better. As I said, it started with an absolute disaster in Novak. Um, who is to blame? Who knows? You know, but it was just a bad look on Tennis Australia. Um, I just hope going forward, this these kind of things don't happen again. I tell you what, though, here's here's an interesting one. You mentioned the the fan behavior, and fair enough, you probably wouldn't see that at Wimbledon. Player behavior, though, we've been seeing that for a while, haven't we? I mean, you grew up watching Bjorn Borg, his great rival John McEnroe was known to swear and curse and break rackets in front of the royal box mm. so is that is that a new phenomenon and i guess Shivank, i want to ask you this nick kegios and his antics good or bad for the game of tennis look he's called the bad boy of tennis for a reason um i've only got so much of my energy that i want to dedicate to nick kegios occasionally he's entertaining but for most for the most part for me he crosses the line where you know it I get the fact that he's seeking attention, but it's not on. Like, I'm here to see good quality tennis and not necessarily um, all the stuff that he brings along to the party. There's been some things that I've really enjoyed over the years from Nick Kyrgios. Um, There was a moment where he was frustrated with how he could not serve to an opposition player and somebody from the audience screams, serve it down this way, and he does gets the point with an ace and acknowledges the fans. So there's moments that he's had, which I've been appreciative of. He's offered um, bananas or something to the ball boy or ball girl who was standing next to him. So there's moments that have been okay, but on the whole, nah, well, not my personal cup of tea, sorry. Wouldn't it be ironic as well if he had received that sort of coaching against uh, Tsitsipas, whose dad was caught. Did you hear about the sting operation? His father was caught uh, shouting out the instructions in Greek. And it wasn't the first time that he's been warned or he's had a match violation for his dad sharing him instructions in Greek. Um, the entire story is really fascinating, especially for um, the semi-final. Um, the two players have history, Medvedev and Tsitsipas, going back to last year's Australian Open as well, where you know words were exchanged between the players. And then this was just a continuation of it. But really, the way in which the sting operation was done, I don't know, just just give the guy a warning first off before going through the entire process of having someone sneak behind and, you know, hide underneath the um, 
box and then go, oh, yeah, that's Greek. I can hear instructions. So um, give him a court violation for that. Here's, here's what struck me as really hilarious because we had all this thought and planning going into having a sting operation, catching somebody who was giving Greek instructions. Uh, yet when rain falls in Melbourne, we have the ball boys and ball girls with beach towels mopping up the court. Like, is there maybe a mismatch in how the resources are being allocated here in Melbourne? Should we have an inquiry? Um, yeah, again, as I said, for me, it's been an absolute shambles of a tournament. So I don't think there's much, nothing much to comment on that one. But I, I just want to say something. I'll just go back to what I said about Bayon Bog and his, how, what a gentleman he was when he was playing uh, tennis. Um, there was a story about him, and he started at a very young age. He actually broke his tennis when he was he was about to lose a game or he lost a game. And then his dad actually locked up his, his rackets, and he said, you're not getting it back unless you actually change your behavior. Because if you, wanna, if you don't respect the game, you don't deserve to play the game. Um, there was a turning point in Beyond Box's career when he broke his racket and his dad locked it up. And since then, he was an absolute gentleman. You know? So that was my reference to Beyond Box. I think on a, on a personal note, Sid, um, particularly with the Aussie Open, we've seen probably not even as far back as Beyond Borg, but the way Roger Federer has behaved and the relationship he's had with the Aussie crowd. Yeah. We talk about Kyrgios and whether that sort of behavior is quite acceptable. For so long, personally, we've seen Nadal... Federer set the standard in terms of on the court, but also the way you behave with the crowd and the way you carry yourself off the court. Mm. I think Federer not being there, it it's I think taken away some of that, some of the gold standard. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Is variety the spice of life though? Do the likes of Federer and Bjork stand out more because some of their colleagues perhaps aren't so well behaved? Does it also make it more watchable, do you think? To, to a point, you obviously don't want anyone crossing the line. But do we need some of these characters around just to make the sport a bit more watchable, a bit more relatable? Oh, look, absolutely, absolutely. If, if everyone was Roger Federer, then Roger Federer would not stand out. We, we need the Mavericks. Tennis has always had the Mavericks. But like Shabank said, there is this line that a few of the characters in the Aussie Open this year have just crossed once too often. Yeah. Right? And and then look, it is it is a gray area. Where does competitiveness just turn into petulance? But I think we would all agree that it, that line has been crossed a few times during this tournament. Oh, most certainly. All right, guys, let's uh, wrap this tennis section up. We're just focusing on the positives here now, or rather the standout moments. Let's keep it to the on-field stuff. What in this tournament, one moment that stood out for you, Capri? Last night, Ash Barty, uh, homegrown winner. A women's game need, it needed that boost. That, to me, regardless of what unfolds in the next couple of hours in, in the men's tournament, that, that really stood out. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the amazing thing was that she won in straight sets. Not in the game, in the entire tournament. She didn't drop a set all tournament. And in that final set, coming back from you know, 5-1 down to winning it in the tiebreak, that just shows incredible mentality. Absolutely. Utter dominance. Utter dominance. Shivank, how about you? 
Yeah, though I was about to go with Ash Party as well. Look, first Australian woman champion in 44 years. Um, she's not really the most emotional player on the pitch. She's either got a poker face or a very determined face. But after she won the trophy, the outpour of emotion that she had um, meant a lot. And she's also an indigenous player. So, you know, we've just seen um, Scott Boland dominate in the Ashes and he's an indigenous player. So there seems to be a thing going on with... Um, people of indigenous backgrounds in Australia, which is really nice and it's really refreshing. Um, I don't think I'll ever have the words to do Ash Barty justice as well as the Sydney Morning Herald has done today. Um, they've written a piece on her explaining her legacy and everything. And I think that is just an absolute piece to read. It'll be definitely uh, on my on my desk for tomorrow morning. And uh, Sid, how about you? Your standout moment of the tournament. It was actually Ash Barty, and I'll sum it up in one line. Um, if Nick was the lowest point, she was the highest one of this tournament. Yeah. Well said. Well, very well said. For me, I think it was also the emergence of the next generation and just a preview of the rivalries to come. You know, Tsitsipas' performance in the quarterfinal was just... It just showed a player at the very top of his game. Now, how much of that was coaching from dad on the sidelines, we don't know, because as soon as his dad was ejected in the semifinal against Medvedev, he went to pieces. But Medvedev's had the wood on him for a long time, and I think that's a rivalry that will go forward, and many more of that to come. We were looking at a young player like Carlos Alcaraz, who didn't, really, didn't make it past the, I think it was a third round, but, you know, very, very talented player. Looking forward to seeing more, more of him. And within, in the women, you know, Ana Simova upsetting Naomi Osaka. And uh, Iga, I hope I'm saying this right, Shvontek. The emergence of these, the new guard, I think, has been really exciting for me. Of course, we can't talk about the Australian Open without, without discussing a man who wasn't there. You've mentioned his name already, said Novak Djokovic. So he faced resistance on the rival into the country. And he got past that first line of defense, the Aussie system, they activated a long, slow process that eventually resulted in his removal as an unwanted foreign body. Uh, Shivant, was this all an elaborate plan to teach Novak how the human immune system works? Bit of poetic justice in there, isn't it? Like the, the parallels with the human immune system was quite fascinating for me. Um, and going forward, I hope actually that the Aussie immune system now has the right memory T-cells going forward to produce the right cytokines so that when a foreign body like this arrives the next time in Australia, they know how to handle it better. But in saying that, if Novak needs a YouTube channel or a book on how the immune system works, I've got a few recommendations for him. I don't think he cares about my opinion too much, but the offer's still out there for him. I thought you were the quantum entanglement guy, but we'll have to change your intro for next week. I'll quote a line from a famous show with my own twist on it. I drink coffee and I know things. That's what I do. <laughs> Perfect. All right, then. Let's move on to football. All right, go play. Fill us in. What happened this week? All right. Quite a few FPL fans out there. Uh, my good friend Dev Lola is not on the show. We're, we're both avid FPL players. We, we do this thing before every game week and we say, hey, bro, who's your captain going to be? Dev was going <laughs> to captain Kevin De Bruyne. I, I, I talked him out of captaining Kevin De Bruyne into captaining Emmanuel Dennis from Watford. Not only did Dennis blank, <laughs> he also got red carded. So each day over this international break, both of us have been logging in and looking at Emmanuel Dennis with a big fat negative two as captain. He's been sending me profanities every day. And I hate this international break. I can't wait for it to be over. 
explain to me why why does hate for international football? Okay, so there's the the, the FPL side of things as injuries, injuries ruin FPL planning, but but on a more serious note, personally, again, there is very little context, right? It, it it's so stop start. We these international breaks pop in at random times. Most of the time, we don't know who's playing who. Most of the time, we don't know who's in the squads. It, there is very little context and very little continuity, and it makes the whole thing very hard to get engaged with. I'm curious. So what was your first introduction to football when you were a child? What was it that made you fall in love with football? World Cup 94 in the U.S., uh, Romario, that, that magical Brazilian team, that was the first time I was introduced to football. Between then and 98, following United, so I, I guess following that United team that was going to go on to great things, that was sort of where uh, I'd say I became a, a fan for life. But, but where I kind of really fell in love with the game, um, probably France 98. And I, I can see where you're going to go with this question. You know it. But but this is it. This is this is it, Pradesh. It, it, it's I, I think the international football gives us these insanely euphoric high points. We look at the World Cups. We look at the Euros. But in between, there is very little. Right, there is very little to get engaged with. You're 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 in this two year cycle where it's personally World Cup Euros, World Cup Euros, and very little in between, except. Except annoyed FPL players. I, I find it very hard to believe that nobody else was glued to the television watching the doubleheader between Indonesia and Timor Leste. Or the game between, for some reason, Moldova and Uganda. Anybody know why that happened? Look, Pavish, I would, I, would, I, would, I would almost hedge a bit. It was probably only you watching trying to find the next midfield talent for United. <laughs> Oh man, I wish I wish we got some Afcon because there's been some serious banter going on at the Afcon right now. Uh, look, Eric Eric Bailly, Cote d'Ivoire against Egypt. They go to penalties. I'm just going to digress here for a sec. Yeah, so they go to penalties. Eric Bailly, who's probably never taken a penalty in his life, comes up, takes the team's third penalty. Now, if you've never taken a penalty before, or if you you know you're not a well-known penalty taker, what are you going to do? What would you do? Personally, pick a corner. Smash it. Yep. Shavank? Yeah, same thing. Smash it in the top corner. Sid? Um, I'll go straight. Yep, straight down. But you're going to hit it pretty hard. Right. Right. Well, it's good thinking. It's good thinking. And look, I, I'm probably with good people than Shivank. I will just thunder it. Hit it as hard as I can and just hope it goes somewhere in the vicinity of the net. Does Eric Bailly do these things? No. Eric Bailly tries to do a no-look penalty like his teammate Bruno Fernandes, and hits it pretty much straight at the keeper. It, I, it just blows my mind that in an international tournament, <laughs> that somebody would do something like that. And this is my entire case. This is the entire thesis for me for the value of international football because you're not going to see that at the club level. You know, there's a second reason for it, right? He wants Mo Salah to stay at AFCON for longer so that United have a chance of catching up. That is some big brain 3D chess, and I love Eric Bailly so much more for it. I, 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 I need uh, I need two transfers to bring Mo Salah back into my uh, back into my FPL team, and I don't want to take any more hits, Shavank. So big fan of Eric Bailly doing that. 
I'm, I'm actually going to captain that egg by you next time. That's what I'm going to do. Because if a player can think that far ahead, he's my captain for sure. Okay, but look, getting back to getting back to international football, it's a frustrating time for all the club fans. You know, we, we do get into the cycle of, you know, Premier League, Champions League, Serie A, whatever it is, your, your Saturdays, your Sundays, and your Wednesdays and your Thursdays, right? Or if you're an Arsenal, if you're a Spurs fan, it used to be Conference League on a Friday. Anyway, though, is international football worth saving? And if so, what can we do about it, Shivan? I think first thing, mid-season international friendlies have no place in the modern game, especially when your top clubs are playing 55, 60-odd games a year. Um, it's become even worse because of COVID. Um, players now have to tr- play three matches after traveling to a different country and then respecting their COVID protocols. And for someone like Thiago Silva, who's 37, is a Brazilian captain, uh, it is just not feasible at that age. And I'd much rather Thiago Silva be available for the Champions League quarterfinal or semifinal or whatever than be rested because he was busy playing for Brazil against a non footballing entity because FIFA organized a friendly. I think AFCON do something, sorry, not AFCON, the Asian Football Federation do something really smart in which they have a tiered system wherein you don't have to play the absolute minnows. You come in based on your seed. I think that's a good way, although um, there might be some opposition to that in the sense that some people genuine, some fans genuinely want to see for example, England play a minnow because that's the only chance the, the supporters of the minnow will get to see the likes of Harry Kane or whoever in the flesh. But yeah, beyond that, look, I'm sure there's a time and place for international football. It's just not in the middle of a pandemic with a highly compact schedule. Capri, what do you think of that tiered system? I think it's a good idea, Pavish. I, I, I fully get the argument that you want your, you want France, you want Spain, you want Germany playing the minnows in Europe, and you want a simple, fair system. But I think there is just the the qualification process is just so tedious. It's it's simply there are so many games that are that are irrelevant. England playing Moldova, Germany beating, goodness knows who, thirteen nil. Is it really doing that much benefit to the international game? I think if we had a tiered system, and and into that tiered system, we could somehow fit in at least the World Cup winner and the World Cup finalist, you'd get a little bit more continuity. One of the things that I'm really baffled with, I, I get the notion that the World Cup winner needs competitive games, so they're a part of qualifying. But the possibility that the side that wins the FIFA World Cup may not even qualify for the next one. It, it's, 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 it's baffling. It, it really is baffling. And, and perhaps a, a tiered system using seeding, it may be some way to effectively reward teams for a good World Cup. Perhaps if you make a quarterfinal in the previous tournament, it gives you a seeded advantage going into the next one, particularly for qualifying. And it takes away some of this fixture backload that makes domestic club football so disruptive. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned World Cup winners having to qualify and they've taken that rule away for many years until they brought it back after the 2002 World Cup and Brazil 
the world champions were in favor of it because what was happening was that in those four years between World Cups, all they had was Copa America and they had no other competitive fixtures. And they were jetting off around the world playing meaningless friendly. So they found there was more context that way. What's also interesting is it's only Europe and South America that don't have a tiered system for qualification. Every other confederation has a set of playoffs or second group stages, third group stages, before they get to qualification. And, you know, I think like Africa does, again, they keep it small. They have small groups, uh, which makes it more exciting because there's, you, there's less margin for error, I think, for these teams. So it's a really fascinating idea that you've got there, Shivank, about the tiered qualification. Uh, Sid, you had something to say about this. Yeah, see, um, uh, listening to you guys, and I'll just compare it with, you know, I use cricket uh, example for a lot. Um, with every sport, there is a commercial aspect to it as well. Now, as, as you said, if a very strong team was playing a very weak team, what's the commercial benefit for it? of it? Pretty much none. So is that actually going to be promoted at all? I don't think so. You know, so if, for example, and the other aspect is, if say, Germany played a very, very weak team and they scored 20 goals, then it's a, it's a bad look for the sport as well. You know, then a, a lot of times, you know, somebody who is aspiring to be a football player, or, you know, love the sport, you go, oh, it's a waste of time. You know, what's the point of these kind of games? So you, you've got to look at it from that point of view as well, that you've got to keep it competitive. So you've got the people engaged watching the game. And also people who are trying to take up the sport don't get disheartened by the fact that they were absolutely annihilated by a very strong team. So what's the point of following this sport? Um, that, that's my take on it. Yeah. Totally agree. Not that it helps football in any way, given how federated the entire thing is, but I generally like how the BCCI have structured the IPL to be right after the international season's over and right before the international season break begins so that everybody who's playing the IPL is only focused on the IPL and they don't have the distraction of international cricket. For the most part, you'll still have some exceptions of players not coming in for whatever reason, but at least all the Indian players are there because as far as they're concerned, the international season's over. And then when the IPL ends, it's a couple of months break for everyone to rest and recover. And then the next cycle starts. I don't know how that applies to football, but it's a general observation that a model like that works a lot better. Um, Gurpreet, you mentioned the 1994 World Cup. There was, that year, was for me, was a very heartbreaking for uh, the World Cup when Vedjo missed the penalty shootout. That's when I actually lost interest in the sport. I said, I'm not watching this sport ever again. I love that player, I'll be honest with you at the time. But uh, yeah, there was, there was a World Cup. I was very disappointed after, yeah. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, it was actually where my interest in football was sparked as well. It's when I saw the Brazilian team win. And so we lost one football fan, but we gained two. <laughs> so, and Shivank, you know, the um, uh, what you mentioned about the IPL, it's a, it's a good point, but also I think a very dangerous point because FIFA already wants to move the World Cup to every two years. And if they look at the IPL, if you tell them about the IPL, they're going to have a World Cup over a year. Careful what you wish for, but <laughs> I genuinely hope we don't move to a biennial um, World Cup. Like it's just too much football for a player to go through. As a fan, I'm sure it's perfect. As someone like me who isn't into international football, I'm sure at least there's something on the telly to keep me distracted. But for a player, it's just going to drain them completely if they have biennial World Cups followed by regular seasons. It's pretty much no break. 
Siobhan, Chelsea could do us all a favour by uh, NLE exit in the Champions League. That would take a good 10 games away from your place this season. Think of their legs. Yeah, well... Think of Lukaku. He's off to Milan anyway, isn't he? Are they going to take him back? Didn't they put up some graffiti out there? Saying, you know, I forget what it said, but it was to the effect of, you know, once you're out the door, you're out the door. Uh, yeah, it was it was rather poetic in what they said. Like, people who don't stay here during the thunderstorm, we don't need them during the rain. So, but, you know, he dreams of going back to Milan. Maybe that's where he wants to play his international football. Uh, speaking of thunderstorms, too, is it a good time to bring up that resemblance to Stormzy? Or is that going <laughs> to... That was such a long time ago. I genuinely was confused who was in the um, United launch video. Was it Stormzy or was it Lukaku? I hate to say it because, you know, okay, there was definitely a race element to it, but I'm going to be honest here. I, it can sometimes, from, from some angles. And Stormzy being a United fan didn't help. So I think now that Lukaku's moved to Chelsea, I think it's a much, much clearer you know, demarcation for us. If you see a dude who looks like that in a United shirt, that's Stormzy. If you see him in a Chelsea shirt, that's Lukaku. Simple. We're all helping each other out. Okay, uh, look, uh, just to wrap it up, I, I have to say, guys, this conversation, a bit biased. Look, we're all primarily club fans. We're not going to be that charitable towards international football. And to get a really balanced perspective, I think we need to hear from fans who support a club in a country, ideally at the same time. But we don't have any Man City or PSG fans on our panel. I don't think we know any Man City or PSG fans. And as far as I'm concerned, they're a rumor. So we'll just have to wrap that up. Uh, and we are out of time. Thank you very much to all our panelists for your comments and opinions. And thank you to everyone out there for listening. We'll be back next week with more sports analysis and banter right here on The Back Pass.